Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.5 says, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. So last couple of studies, I've been doing a little word association to start by way of introduction. We talked about misunderstanding last week. So my question for today is what comes to mind when I say the word discipline? Discipline. I thought there'd be a lot of groans, you know, because discipline can mean a lot of things. You can lead a disciplined life, meaning that I have a very structured life. I'm disciplined. I do certain things at certain times. Discipline for some of you actually means punishment. Maybe you got harshly treated as a child. You grew up in a difficult family, so it has a negative connotation, discipline. Anything else discipline means to you or what comes to mind when you hear the word discipline? Self-control. Okay, good, good. Learning, instruction, the meaning of the word instruction, learning. So what about when I say the word church discipline? That's usually when I get the groans. Oh, church discipline. Wait a second. You know, we're a family. And so we recognize that family, part of family is discipline. So in church, there's church discipline, but oftentimes it comes with a very negative connotation. It comes with the self-righteousness. It comes with harshness. It comes with coldness. So we tend to look at that and go, oh, church discipline, that's a miserable topic, a miserable thought. What if I use the word correction? Does that make things any better? What if I say, instead of discipline, what if we talk about the word correction? Because to correct, it's from the Latin word that means to guide together, to make straight or to direct in a straight line. That's what correction is. Discipline or correction is not about punishment or vengeance or inflicting harm or shame. It is about helping a person to walk a straight line, to do what's right. In our context, helping a person to walk with God. We're saved, but then we got to figure out what it looks like to walk with God. And we have some things to help us with that. We have the Spirit of God, we have the Word of God, and we have the people of God. That's where church discipline comes in. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You guys probably know it by heart. Some of you, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Well, the word direct in Hebrew just means straight. He'll straighten out your path. When I got saved, I was walking a little bit crooked. I needed a V8 or something. You know, you ever seen that commercial? I got to have a V8 because I'm walking sideways. There's a lot of stuff I didn't know. I wasn't walking straight. I was walking crooked, twisted. And God, his word, his spirit just straightened out my life as I began to trust him. That's the key. As I began to trust him, trust what he says instead of what my heart was telling me or instead of what the culture was telling me, instead of what the movies were telling me, I had to trust what God was telling me. When I did that, when you do that, when anyone does that, God says, okay, I can straighten out your path now. The purpose of correction, because we get off track, the purpose of correction is to get us back on track, to redirect someone that has gotten off track or off the path in life or with, even with God. It's a caring and helpful thing when it's done with love and sensitivity. How many of you have ever taught 
a child, a youth to drive. You ever taught your kids to drive? Anybody? Eyes on the road, hands on, no, don't touch that radio. Hands on the wheel, eyes on the road. Hands on the wheel, eyes on the road. And you know, as I know, that good driving consists of a lot of fine tuning, doesn't it? The problems come when we let things go and they get way off track and then we try to yank it back all at once. That's when things happen, cars flip, accidents happen. But if we're driving with our hands on the wheel, that's how parenting looks like. It's not waiting, 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 then one big correction. It's a lot of little corrections. That's how God works with us in our lives. A lot of little corrections along the way. Some of them come from where? Spirit of God. Some of them come from where else? I just said it. Word of God. Some of them come from where else? Uh Uh-oh. People of God. People of God. How do you respond to correction in your life? How do you respond when someone corrects you? Ooh, do you respond with shame, with anger, with resistance, with pride? Or do you welcome correction? Do you thank them? Oh, thank you so much for telling me what's wrong with me. I so appreciate that. We can, you know. And when it comes to church life, I mean, it's one thing you get corrected at work. You had a boss correct you? Yeah. If you're at school, kids in school know all about correction. You take that test, you get it back. It's got a big red F on it, lots of red marks. You've been corrected. Now, I don't know why in our culture, correction is a dirty word. I haven't figured that out. I believe it's a real problem culturally. People say, well, I don't want anybody to tell me what's wrong. I don't want anybody to speak that into my life. I don't want anybody to correct me. As if we thought we were perfect. And that when someone figures out that we're not, we're kind of surprised by the whole thing. What? So when someone corrects me, it's like, yeah, okay, I know. I haven't arrived yet. So correction can be a really good thing. It should be a really good thing. And when it comes to church life, what do we do in church when someone is clearly off track? They're in church, but they're not walking with the Lord. Does it affect everyone or just that person? It affects everybody. It affects anybody in their circle, their sphere of influence. Whose role is it to correct that? And these are some of the questions we'll answer as we go through the passage. Whose role in the church is it to correct it? Well, it's the pastor's role. Is it? Well, it's the elders of the church. They're responsible. Are you sure? Maybe no one should say anything. I think that's more where we are culturally. We see something, but we're not going to say anything. I'm not going to get involved with that. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. That's kind of how we deal with this. So what does all this background have to do with our section? Well, remember, the background is that Paul had written 1 Corinthians, the first letter to this church, to correct some issues in their lives. Now, if you read with me the first section of chapter 2, it says, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for, notice, such a man, so that you ought to rather comfort him. So there's a very specific situation going on. Remember, 2 Corinthians is a very personal letter. It's very transparent. It's very vulnerable. It's very honest. And he's dealing with really a case study or a specific situation. This is not general, not hypothetical. Paul's helping them deal with an issue that they had to correct. And now what's the rest of the story? And it's dealing with a certain person. So the question is in verse five, if anyone has caused grief, well, who is this anyone? Some say it's a person that when Paul made his trip, remember he wrote first Corinthians and he followed it with a visit. And the visit, eh, it didn't go so well. It seems some were really resistant 
to what Paul had to say, the correction he brought them. He corrected them about taking each other to court. He corrected them about their divisiveness, the way their childishness. It was kind of a tough letter. So he followed it up with a visit, bad visit. It didn't go well. So he goes back to Ephesus and he writes another letter, a harsh letter. First Corinthians was not that letter. This letter we don't have preserved for us, but it was a harsh letter that he wrote back and he dealt with, again, some of these issues. And then we'll see how these issues were resolved. But this person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have it marked, right? Let's go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It could be a person that resisted Paul and his authority, but more likely, and it doesn't say it in the section, but this is what most people believe that Paul's referring to. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So Paul writes to the church, he says, hey church, I got word that in your congregation, there's a guy sleeping with his stepmom. Now that's not the only problem. The problem is in the next verse, verse two, it says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you church discipline. Look over at verse four. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, Paul says, I'm not there personally, but I'm with you in spirit. With the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one, this guy who's living in sin in the church, instead of being proud about it, puffed up about it, he says, you should deliver that one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So if this guy wants to live worldly, then let him go out and have all that the world has to offer. And that's what Paul asked them to do. Some of them evidently said, no, we ain't doing it. We don't agree. Because they were proud of it. They were puffed up. Oh, look how tolerant we are. Look how gracious we are as a church. Well, Paul sent the other letter. And then he hears from Titus. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And guess what? The church responded to him. They actually did it. They set that guy out of the church. They disciplined him. Now look what happens. He says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. So Paul says, when I wrote that, it's not because I was upset personally. Paul didn't take that personally. They misunderstood. It's not because Paul was personally offended. It was because of the damage it was doing to the body, to the family. You know that when someone in your family, in your sphere, is causing harm, is living in a way that is unhealthy, that is damaging, it doesn't just hurt you, it hurts everybody. Do you understand that? Maybe I can explain it this way. How many of you have ever experienced the joy of having a kidney stone? A few hands are going up, right? So you know that when you have a kidney stone, it's more than just your kidney that hurts. Matter of fact, I looked up. I've never had one, praise the Lord. But I've looked up the symptoms. So you can have back pain, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, fever, all those things from a kidney stone. And we recognize that we are a body and that what happens in one area, now in a church this size, maybe not everybody would be affected, but whoever's in the sphere of influence of the person who's clearly not walking with God is going to be affected. So your first thing you have to realize from this is your life affects other people. It hurts other people when you're living that way It hurts other people that love you. Not people that are self-righteous, 
but people that love you because they see you harming yourself and they see you harming the body. Well, notice the second thing. Again, he's not trying to be too severe in blaming this guy who's a real person. This is a real incident by saying, well, you're grieving everybody. It's not to be too severe. But in fact, he says, verse six, the punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So notice who inflicted the punishment or the penalty or did what Paul said. Was it just the pastors that did it? Say no. No. Was it just the elders of the church? It was the majority. The people, again, that were in the church had to all be in agreement to say, wow, Paul, we see now instead of pretending to love by being tolerant, which really isn't love after all, we see that we need to all, it's like a church intervention, like a giant church timeout. And we're all saying, look, brother, sister, dude, dudette, whatever you call female dude, it's not okay. Like we love you and we want to have a relationship with you, but until you deal with the issue in life, we're not just going to brush into the carpet because we love you. How many of you understand what I'm saying? You know, the Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Paul has cared enough. I heard a story about a young girl that started attending church. She had come just right out of the world and she had come right out from all the junk from the world. And she just had this way of dressing that was very provocative. And everybody in the church was talking about it. And finally, one day, an elderly woman in the church went up to her and she said, sweetheart, you know, you don't have to dress that way to get attention. And she began to cry. And she said, you know, I was beginning to think nobody here cared about me. I was just waiting for someone to say something. She wanted someone to notice and to comfort her, to come to her. So it was the job of the majority. This is what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 18, that conflict resolution passage, if you have something against someone, you go to them, you and them. And if you can resolve it, great. If not, then you take somebody else with you. You don't gossip to 10 people. You don't tell 15 other people. You go right back to that person with someone else who knows what's going on and who understands and you confront them. And then if they still don't hear, then the Bible says, and it's this kind of enigma, just take it to the church. Now, for some people, that presents this huge picture of a group of self-righteous pastors up on the stage, airing out someone's dirty laundry to make them ashamed, to shame them into doing what's right or to just being guilty. Please understand that from Paul and from the Bible, that is not the picture at all. Tell it to the church or tell it to the sphere of influence, the people. The church is not the elders. The church is people. So the other people in that person's life need to all be unified like this intervention where we all are saying the same thing to that person. We love you and we want to see you get the help you need. We love you and we want to see you walking with God. And we're not going to pretend it's not happening. We're not going to ignore it because that's not love. And we love you enough to tell you you need to get right with God. And until you do that, we're not going to play games. We're not going to pretend. Are you with me in this church? And he says the punishment inflicted, notice again, by the majority. Please see the heart of this is care for people, not self-righteous condemnation. The heart is care. And just so you know, a couple other verses that say, because some people, the attitude of the church today is, well, I'm not going to deal with their stuff. That's between them and the pastors. We'll let the pastors deal with it. A healthy body is self-correcting. You guys ought to be looking out for one another, not again with self-righteous condemnation, but just looking out and coming alongside one another. And if you see someone, well, that's what the Bible says, Galatians 6. 
Brothers and sisters, Calvary Chapel Fluvanna, if any of you sees someone caught up in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore the person gently. You go to them lovingly, caringly, and gently. And you say, man, I just see you're just caught up in this. Can I help you? How about Romans 15? Paul says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. It's the word admonish. That means to confront in care, to correct and bring change. That's what admonish means. To confront in care, to correct and bring change. That's the goal of discipline. That's the goal of correction. Not humiliation, but change. How about one more? James chapter five, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wonder from the truth, the person who used to sit next to you, the person who used to be at your Bible study, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring them back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. So these are the ways that Paul says it's the majority that are involved now and you guys have a role with each other to bring gentle correction when you see someone doing living wrong not just turning a blind eye, brushing to the carpet. I'm afraid to address it. When it's done in a good way, it's very, very healthy. Are you with me, church? I mean, I've had people in this church, I've been a pastor for 15 years. You think I don't get correction? Come on now. I use a lot of words. I talk to a lot of people. I do a lot of wrong things. I'm human. Are you human? Why do we act so surprised when someone dares to correct something in our lives as if we were perfect? I, I, how, dare, how dare you confront me about, well, thank you. I may not agree with you all the time. That's why you got to bring a second person or my whole sphere of influence. But I can appreciate when someone thinks enough and I've grown, I've become a better person. I'm a better Christian because people in my life have taken time to correct me when they've seen me wrong. I can point to some of you here today that have brought correction to my life and I'm thankful for it. So notice that once it produced the change, that there was repentance. So this guy, they dealt with him as a group. They said, man, you want to live that way? Go deal with Satan in the world. And when he chews you up and spits you out, what happens next? Well, the guy, it turns out, praise the Lord, he repented. He didn't just go to the church down the road and live out his sin there. It's one of the most difficult and damaging trends in church life currently is if a person is living wrong in this church, instead of dealing with it, reconciling it, they just go to the church down the road. Now, there was a day when this pastor would call that pastor and say, hey, that person just came to your church. They're not right over here. Like they've left with a lot of baggage. They've left a lot of damage in their wake. They've gossiped, they've hurt people. And you need to kick them back here. (laughs) You send them back. Kick them on back here. Because you don't want to run around because those things... They're unreconciled issues. So God's people are running around, maybe some in this room today, running around with a bunch of unreconciled garbage from previous churches. Now, I'm not saying you got to die in that church you got baptized in. God moves us around. That's why we don't have a membership. You're free. But if you got to leave here, don't leave here with baggage. Reconcile, repent, change your mind. So this guy, evidently, he changed his attitude. It worked. Praise the Lord when it works. He changed his attitude. He was broken about it. That's all we're looking for. Not looking for you to be perfect. Not looking for you to be sinless. 
But when sin is brought to your attention, when a way of living that's not in accord with Christ is brought to your attention, it should break your heart. And if there's brokenness, we say, hey man, we are with you because we're working it out too. And I know that I ain't perfect and I know that you ain't perfect and we have a gracious God and we'll be broken about our sin together and we'll walk in the grace of God, in the light, in reality. So the punishment was inflicted by the majority. It was sufficient and it produced its purpose. See, they went from one extreme to the other. At first they were saying, well, we're not going to do anything about it. We think this is what the grace of God looks like. Paul says, no, that's not what the grace of God looks like. He says, you got to deal with it so that the body stays healthy. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's what he said. But now that he's repented, they're going, well, we don't think we should bring him back. Come on, Corinthians. Let him back in. Why? Because the punishment was sufficient. Parents, once the punishment has accomplished its goal of correction, now you are responsible to reaffirm love and affection. If you've been coming Wednesday night, we've been studying the story of Absalom and David. Absalom is David's son and he murders his brother, half-brother, because his half-brother raped his sister. So he takes matters into his own hands. He kills this guy and then he goes on the run for three years. He's on the run, never hears anything from his father. And then finally, his friend Joab convinces him through a story to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. He brings him back, but guess what? Another two years pass, he never talks to him. So the kid is, okay, well, I'm back, but no one's talking to me. Am I going to get killed for murder because life for life? Or am I going to be forgiven like David was forgiven for committing murder? What is it? And so he's just left in the dark and it's causing him bitterness and it's causing him anger and it's causing him frustration because David never reaffirmed his love to him. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He wanted to go live a party life. He wanted to live out from under his father. He wanted to do his own thing, be his own man, make his own way. And he ended up with a bunch of pigs in the slop. They said, man, well, this stinks. I'm not living high on the hog, as it were. I think life was better back home. So he goes home. And what's the first thing his father does? Runs to him, puts his arms around him, and reaffirms his love for him. His repentance was demonstrated because he came home. The challenge in the church today is people will get angry. There's some gentle correction that's attempted. Then people get angry. They feel ashamed. They get angry. They get prideful and they leave. And too often that's the last we see of them. And then they live with that unreconciled issue instead of actually coming back, coming back to resolve, coming back to restore peace and unity. And then if you got to go to another church, that's up to you. Don't run around with a lot of baggage in your life. It makes it really hard to sleep at night. It makes it really hard for God to pour out his blessings in your life. So Paul tells them that the punishment was sufficient. Now you need to bring him home and reaffirm your love for him. Why? What's the danger? Did you see what it said there? On the contrary, you ought to rather forgive him and come alongside of him. Help him recover, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. That's possible. People can drown in the sorrow over their sin. He feels bad about it. Your kids feel bad. Once they feel bad about it, it's time to ease off. Let up the tension. Hug them. Kiss them. Tell them how much you love them. Why? Because if you don't, they can, well, the word swallowed up is to drown. You want to have one of those relationships with your kids where it's always, don't do this, don't do that, don't go here, don't go there. 
and always correction, 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 but never affirmation of love. And so Paul says, you got to forgive this guy. They didn't want to. Lest perhaps he should be swallowed up with too much sorrow. You know, there's such a thing as too much sorrow. Some sorrow is good. You should feel a little bit of sorrow. That's what leads to repentance. Hang around for chapter seven. But too much sorrow can lead to discouragement, can lead to depression, and can even lead to suicide. So Paul says, this is what we have to do now. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So welcoming them back is the way we demonstrate forgiveness. And this means you're welcome back. This means we're not going to talk about it. This means we're not going to bring it up anymore. This means we're not going to tell you we forgive you and then talk to all of our friends about what you did. You know, if you're in a marriage and there's not been forgiveness over something in the past, then the argument breaks out and all of a sudden you're back in 1975, bell bottoms and everything going, I remember when you did this, that was 25 years ago. Have I not been forgiven for that yet? And in a marriage, if there's not forgiveness, remember the Bible says, love keeps no record of wrongs. So if you don't have that forgiveness, then that other spouse, whatever it's been, maybe it's been adultery. Maybe it's been infidelity. And you've said, I forgive, but every time you're upset, it comes up again and again. And that other person, they probably feel horrible about it. They regret it but they're drowning in an ocean of unforgiveness. Forgiveness is the life raft you throw a person who is ashamed of their sin, a broken person. Forgiveness, the root word for forgiveness is grace. They don't deserve it. It's a gift. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm, validate your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test to know by experience, literally, whether you are obedient or listening attentively in all things. Would they do what Paul suggested? This is sort of a test where you follow the Lord's instruction in this. Now, verse 10, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Paul says, look, I forgive him too. I mean, I'm not holding anything against him. I'm ready to welcome him back too. The problem with unforgiveness, it says it right here, then Satan gets a chance to take advantage of his people. Again, you got a guy drowning. I got a a woman drowning in regret, drowning in sorrow, drowning in shame. Now Satan's going, he's drooling. He's ready because Satan is an adversary. He likes to prowl around seeking whom he can devour. And when you see a person drowning in sorrow, you go, oh, there's an easy target. To forgive means to give pleasure, to give joy, to give delight, to give sweetness, loveliness, grace. We're not going to hold it over your head. Why? Because we don't want Satan to take advantage of us, of us, not just of them. By the way, did you know Satan is not a, a proper name? It's a title. In ancient Hebrew culture, when you had an issue with somebody, you'd go down to the city gates and that's where the elders sat And they would hear the matters and make their judgment. Well, the one who was making the accusation was called ha-satan in Hebrew. The opponent, the one making the accusation. So here's a person drowning in the sea of sorrow. And there is Satan ready to push them down even farther. Because he likes to steal, kill, and destroy. So he can take advantage literally to be covetous. 
Satan covets what doesn't belong to him. This is a brother or sister in Christ. And unless forgiveness is extended, then Satan has a chance to devour. He says, look, church, we're not ignorant of his devices or his mind, the way he thinks. But we know that the way Satan works is to get people when they're down. So that's why there's a time for correction. There's a time to put away. There's a time to cast away. And what else is there a time for, church? There's a time to embrace. So we have to be real careful to do that, to do that, to do that. You think Satan, he comes in and says, hi, I'm Satan. I got big horns. I'm wearing my Satan suit and I got a big long tail. Satan looks like you or me or the person who's unwilling to forgive. Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter, what are you calling me Satan for? That's Satan at work. So important stuff, important stuff for us as a church. Verse 12, now he moves on from that, encouraging them to re-embrace this guy. The whole thing has gone well. He's repented. Now he says, re-embrace him. Don't hold it over him. Let's move on. Now Paul's going to move on. Verse 12, furthermore, back to his travel plans, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. So remember, they were accusing Paul of being wishy-washy, fickle in his travel plans. He told them he was going to come to them twice, but then he decides after the letter and a bad visit, he decides to write them a letter and then go somewhere else instead rather than having that harsh relationship with them. And so now he explains that, so instead of going back to Corinth, he goes up to a place called Troas. He heads north. And there, a beautiful thing happens. Remember, he's changed plans, but God meets him there and says, ah, Paul, I've got a big open door for you. I mean, this is like every preacher's dream. An open door. Paul, there's a church there. Go ahead and preach the gospel. But Paul says, I had no rest in my spirit. I couldn't relax. Why? He was worried. Titus, one of his interns, carried this harsh letter to the Corinthians. And Paul worried sick over it. Paul's not just a preaching machine. He's just not notching off notches in his belt. Paul wasn't concerned with how many people he baptized. Matter of fact, he told the Corinthians, I don't even know how many people I baptized. I can't remember. I'm not counting. What I'm concerned about was what happens after to the church? What happens after to the person? Are they still walking with God? Are they willing to be forgiven? Can they be forgiven? Are they willing to be embraced? Can they be embraced? So he's so worried about this. Look what he does. He says, because I didn't find Titus. Hey, Titus was supposed to meet me here. He's not here. You know that feeling when someone's supposed to meet you. He couldn't just text him. He couldn't send him an email. He says, so I left, taking my leave of them. I departed from Macedonia. So he started to head to Corinth to find Titus. That is so interesting to me when we think about the will of God and the real lives of people. Here's Paul, the great preacher with a great open door And he says, I just can't do it. I just don't have it in me to preach right now because I'm too worried about my children in Corinth. Let me tell you what, as a pastor, I tell people it's like giving birth. When I preach a sermon and the women go, oh yeah, what do you know about it? So I use that metaphor very carefully, but you stew and you stew and then you present and it's all that's been going on inside of you. And I'm so thankful that my home life is peaceful because I don't know if I could do what I do. Because I have to concentrate. It takes a lot of concentration to do this. And if I've got other things on my mind or other things milling around in my life, it's hard to concentrate. About a year, year and a half ago, I just had one of those. It was like a two-week period. I was just in a good old pastoral funk. 
Anybody been there? I'm just in a funk. I'm ornery. I'm upset. I'm just, I'm just in a funk. I don't know how else to describe it. And Helga was worried about me. I'm just, I'm just, I'm funky right now. I don't know what was going on. I don't know why it was happening. Was it spiritual attack? I don't know what it was. But that Sunday, it came time to preach. And man, this is rare. I've been a pastor for 15 years. I've been going to church for 25 years or so. I love Sunday morning. That Sunday, I did not want to be here. I didn't want to be here. I just didn't have it in me. So I got through it, but it wasn't easy. And so I understand when Paul says, I came to Troas, but I couldn't relax. I didn't have any peace. I just couldn't do it. So he walks away and God doesn't punish him. We don't see, and God took his ministry away from him. God was so mad at him. But what does Paul say? Interesting. He says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? I mean, I love that line. This is a pastoral gem where Paul the apostle himself says, you know, I go and I preach and some people get it and they respond and they get saved and other people they could care less. Matter of fact, it makes them mad. We're talking about eternity here. We're talking about lives and souls and families and futures. It's a big deal. And Paul says, I just, I don't feel qualified. I don't feel like I have it in me. And Paul's right. He doesn't. I don't. You don't. It's got to be the grace of God. I'm not sufficient for these things. And so Paul feels his own weakness. But at the point of his own weakness, he's able to thank God. Did you see that? Verse 14. He says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. I got to explain a couple of quick things here. When it talks about leading us in triumph in Christ, it's a very technical term. In the Roman Empire, when an emperor, when a commander would go out and fight a battle, a major battle, not just any battle, a major battle and get a major victory, the people, the government officials in Rome, the, the emperor would grant them a triumph. So this was a rare thing. Maybe once in a lifetime, you would see one of these things like the Eagles winning the Super Bowl. I'm from Philly. Did they have a parade in Charlottesville with the basketball team? Was there a parade or just a gathering? No parade. Okay. So we'll go back to the Eagles example. I'm from Philly. So huge parade. I mean, people are throwing confetti. There's music. They got the trophies there and just showing it all up. It's glory. Everybody cheering. And so this would be the triumph. When the general commander won this great victory, they'd come and it'd be this big, long prayer. I mean, you got the Snoopy float there in Rome and the whole thing. No, they didn't have a Snoopy float. I'll just see if you're awake. And they would come in and there's the priests would be there and the priests would have their containers of incense and the smoke would be going out. So you'd smell the animals would be there for sacrifice, giving thanks to the gods. And then the people that were conquered would be led by the armies would be coming forward in this parade. So this whole long parade people that are conquered, all the spoils of war, all the things they captured would be paraded through there, all very glorious. And that's what Paul's talking about. And notice what he says, the fragrance, for we are to God, the fragrance, that fragrance he's speaking of is the fragrance of the incense. You would smell the victory, so to speak. Have you ever used that term? Sweet smell of victory. I wonder if that's connected to this idea. So this fragrance would smell and different people would have a different response to this fragrance because there's all the people you captured were in this parade. And then all the army was in this parade. So to some, it was the smell of victory. To others, it was the smell of defeat. 
Maybe I can explain it to you this way. I was born without the grilling gene. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? Guys are just like natural grillers. And I somehow missed that gene. I'm just not a good griller. So I've had to learn. And I've been learning. So I'm getting really good with chicken now. And I've got some good marinades. And so I'm marinating my chicken for 24 hours. And when I put it on the grill, I've learned my temperatures. And when the smell of the grill, it's a sweet aroma, the smell of grilling marinated chicken. But the problem is, to me, it smells sweet, but we have a chicken coop. (laughs) And I always wonder, can they smell that? And I'm not sure to them, the chickens are going, that smells like Martha. (laughs) She was here yesterday. It's the same smell. It just means two different things to two different people, depending on your perspective. So in the parade... Paul sees himself as in this parade being led by Christ, but recognizing that what he does isn't going to be universally received. To some people, when you talk about Christ, when I talk about Christ, to them, it smells like death. Because we say, you got to die to yourself. I mean, I got to die to myself? I mean, I got to do what Jesus says? No, 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 no. I I got my own plans. I got my own ambitions. I know what I want to do with my life. I know where I'm going. I'm my own master. I have my own destiny. I don't have time for this. That's old-fashioned stuff anyway. To them, Christ smells like death. And then that choice leads to death. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end of it is death. But for me, maybe for you, I knew I was dead. I was dead spiritually. And when I smelled the fragrance of a Christian, when I saw the life of a Christian, remember the first guy that I met that was a real Christian, I remember watching how he lived and the things that he said. And wow, that's what I want. To me, that life looked beautiful. And it's what I wanted. So to those people that know they're already dead in their sins and trespasses, and they see what life, what really living looks like, you go, yeah, that's what I want. And it smells good to you. And by the way, we get so concerned with where we are. Should I move here? Should I live there? Kids, youth in here, high school graduates, where should I go to college? Should it be this college? Should it be that? Where does God want me to go? That may be an educational concern. It may be a career concern. But I think it's less of a spiritual concern. What God says is, wherever you go to college, be the fragrance of Christ. That's what you can do. Whatever, this place, that place, over here, over there. What matters is that wherever you go, you're the fragrance of Christ. And you realize that some people will not like that. And other people will be attracted to it. So he says, while we're speaking about these things, he says, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God. This is where we'll close. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So as Paul's talking about some people accept, some people reject, it's Christ. It's the fragrance of Christ. We are to God, the fragrance of Christ. God smells that. You know, God loves that smell of the burnt offering. That life is transformed, that sheep, that goat transformed Old Testament into smoke and it goes up to God and God says, I love barbecue. It's a sweet, it's what the Bible says. It's a sweet smelling aroma because this is why, because that sin offering, you bring your sin offering, the sinner goes free, the animal pays the price, that aroma goes up to God and God says, I'm satisfied. Jesus is the lamb of God. And that smell of his sacrifice was satisfying to God. 
And now we take on that same smell, that same distinctness. And I recognize that for some people, it's going to be attractive. For other people, it's not. But Paul says, for we, we're not. We could be like others, but we're not peddling the word of God. Now, he doesn't speak about a bicycle. He's not out on his bicycle traveling around. When he says peddling the word of God, he speaks of someone who sells street trinkets, someone who dispenses something called truth in little trinkets here and there. We used to say sermonettes for Christianettes. Little trinket here to get a little money, a little trinket there. They're just using, pawning off things that are not what they say they are. For churches, for pastors, pay attention to what people don't say. Sometimes it might be, well, they're saying all the right things. And there's a reason they're saying all the right things, because they want to keep people happy. They want to peddle the word of God for their own benefit, for their own profit. Someone who loves you will give you the whole counsel of the word of God realizing that some of it's going to be hard. Some of it's going to taste better going down and others is going to be, you're going to have to wash that down with something else. It's going to be hard. But Paul says, we're not, and notice he says, as so many. In Paul's day, he would look around and say, no one else with a heart like mine except Timothy. I got nobody else. And he would say, teachers that are running through Corinth, just peddling the word of God. Just out hawking their wares for their own pride. And he says, there's a lot. I think in our day, you realize there's so many peddling the word of God and very few places you can count on getting the whole counsel of God. So we're committed to that because I want to be like Paul. I'm not peddling the word of God. I did this before anybody compensated me for it because it's a calling because I do it in sincerity. And I like this. We speak in the sight of God in Christ. So Paul wasn't concerned with what people thought, with what people were saying, Paul knew that in this first seat right here, right there, Jesus Christ sits there. And whatever I say, I'm looking at him going, am I sharing it with your heart? Is it clear? Is it the way you would say it, Jesus? Because when I speak, I speak in the sight of God. God is watching over me and I have that consciousness. And I need to keep that consciousness. And you need to make sure I have that consciousness so that I'm free to preach the word of God. Aren't you glad for it? So, The next time someone corrects you, say thank you. 